Hi everyone, this is Brooke James. Welcome to The Grief Coach. Today, I am so excited. We have with us Rachel Engstrom, author of Wife, Widow, Now What? How I Navigated the Cancer World and How You Can Too. Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm excited to talk. When we first talked a few months ago now, just I really appreciated how much you had learned and had this calling to share with people that this was so hard and how, what you wish you knew. So I'm really excited for this conversation today. If you want to introduce yourself and share your grief story. So the audience has a sense of where you're coming from. Yeah. So I am outside of Minneapolis and when I was, I'm about to be 39 in a couple weeks. When I was 18, I moved here in 2020 to go to school at the university of Minnesota. Did not know one person, no family here, no one. And sophomore year, first semester, I met this awesome dude. (laughs) (laughs) I was at a birthday party of a friend and her boyfriend had been talking about, you know, we should get them connected. So this older guy that's almost seven years older than me walks in and he was great. So from there, we dated for three years. And he worked night, so we didn't get to see each other Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. but we would have an awesome time on the weekends. And we got married a couple months after I graduated from college, got my first real, so graduated, got my first real job. Then I got married. It was kind of a crazy whirlwind. And we just had a really awesome marriage. It was pretty cool that I was able to become my own person in my 20s with my friends, my jobs you know, different things like that, but also still have the comfort and the consistency of, you know, being with someone as well, which later would become a gift to me that I did not know to have all that independence. Mm -hmm. And when I was 28, the summer of 2010, I had like this horrific, horrific pelvic pain. And I had so much pain, I could barely drive home from work. And then I went and I laid on my bed and had this just horrific pain that when it stopped, I looked down and I thought a baby might come out. And I was like, what is going on? So it mm-hmm. turned out I had endometriosis. So mm-hmm. I learned I might not be able to have kids. I'm grieving, you know, all of that dynamic and thinking, okay, you know, I'm going to get through this. It's nearing the end of 2010. Things are going to get better. We have Chinese food on New Year's Eve. And he gets a fortune cookie that says your life's about to have a major life change. What we didn't know is 11 days later, he would feel really sick. He would go to the doctor. They would say, you need to go um, get blood transfusions, which turned into, you need to go to the Humphrey Center. We drive up as the Humphrey Cancer Center. Mm. So he's diagnosed with this rare blood disease. And then they call a couple hours later. No, you didn't have that. You actually, we need you to come in the next day for a bone marrow biopsy. And I just knew it in my bones at that point that he had cancer. So the next day as he's getting this bone marrow biopsy, I asked, you know, about leukemia and he's knocked out and the nurses are telling me how people successfully go through treatment, become marathon runners and doctors and lawyers and da, 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 da. And I'm thinking, okay, we can do this. So we are told this is a Friday. We're told that we're going to have to wait till Monday to find out what happens, which is a super Mm. long time. But he ends up getting called on Saturday and they tell him he has acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Mm -hmm. So we hospitalized him. Then they also say, 
hey, by the way, you have cancer. And since you're young, we want you to freeze your sperm in case you want kids. And so chemo and radiation doesn't make you sterile. So we're trying to come to terms with the fact that I might not be able to have kids. He has cancer. We need to do these, you know, sterile samples, all this stuff. And then we get him checked into the hospital a couple of days later and he starts chemotherapy. He was part of a clinical trial at the University of Minnesota. He was just the nicest, most amazing guy. He would do like extra bone marrow biopsies and extra spinal taps and things like that just for research. We had the nurses tell us I would bring blankets and a lamp to the hospital and different things to make it homey. And they'd say, oh, the little lovebirds are in their apartment. And, you know, it very quickly without a choice became our new normal. This hospital mm-hmm. life, this, this cancer life was our new normal. And I had to figure out how to navigate, you know, treatment, diagnosis, insurance, family medical leave act, talking to his employer. It's like, I had to do all this other stuff, let alone like put on my big girl pants and talk to his employer and take care of all of these things, these things. So that was pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'd work eight hours, then I'd run back and let the dog out. Then I'd run to the hospital for a couple hours and that was our life. So that was like the first five weeks. Then his cancer went in remission. And then my parents came And they'd been married. They've been married 55 years now. They were 45 years at the time. They were 65 and 72. And they're like, we're going to come live with you and take shifts, switch off. And I was like, I wanted them there, but I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm 28. I want my dad to fold my underwear and do laundry and my mom to be like up in my business. (laughs) Yeah. But it, it ended up being like this great, amazing joy. And so throughout this on and off, I'm having this like horrific endometriosis pain. And this is why I brought that up. All these types of things myself, my own health issues and surgeries here and there. And so he was in remission. Like I said, he got sick in January of 2011. He was in remission to the point where he was so healthy that in April of 2012, we went to Las Vegas to the Young Cancer Conference of Stupid Cancer. He couldn't really go anywhere because of his immune system, but we were outside doing things, spending time together, making plans, things we'd never been able to do while he was working Monday through Friday. And so that was a gift of time to have these two years and three months together. So in August of 2012, I got a call from him and he was crying. I'm in a Target parking lot after work and I have no idea what's going on. And he said, it came back, Rachie, it came back. I have to get a bone marrow transplant. And we both knew that a bone marrow transplant is really risky. Some people don't make it through, they make it through mm-hmm. and then they relapse again. So I talked to him all the way home and we decided just to like sit by ourselves, not call parents or anything. And the next day we call his mom and she's like, this is our last hope. This is our last hope. And she actually was a pretty toxic person in my life. And I just kind of snapped and said, we're going to do what we have to do. He's going to be fine. He's going to be positive. This is what we're going to do. And that's what happened. And he just, he couldn't handle it. And it wasn't about the treatment. It was more, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to put you through this again. I don't want Mm -hmm. you to have to go through this again and take care of me. So we spent the next few months, August, September, October, November, December, trying to get his body prepared, knock out all of the cancer. And when he was initially first diagnosed almost two years before that, somehow they were able to tell that he had only had leukemia a couple of weeks and it had infiltrated like 97% of his body. 
This was like 3% of his body when he relapsed, which sounds like nothing, but it's enough because it grows. It grows very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they just were not able to knock it out. So his bone marrow transplant kept getting pushed again and again and again. And really crazy stuff happened. Like my mom and I went to my church to the Christmas Eve service. He was in the hospital and the minister had gotten permission to talk about Grayson, which I didn't know ahead of time. And I'm sitting there with all these churchgoers, the holiday churchgoers, the church is just full to the max. And the minister starts talking about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Mary and Joseph having to wait and be patient. And all of a sudden he says, just like they had to be patient. I've been spending a lot of time over the last year or so with a young man who just had to give into his faith because he needed this treatment. He needed this life-saving transplant and it wasn't happening. And then he's going on and on and on. And he ends it with, if we all can be more patient like Grayson. And I'm just like so insanely blown away. And I'm looking around like, no one knows this is my husband. So it's just, there's, there are these big like epiphany type things that are happening within it that whether I like it or not, show me, even though I know it, the mortality of it all. Mm -hmm. When I've talked about grief and different things to people, when you're the significant other, when you're the primary caretaker, you don't have the luxury of believing that they're going to die. You can't process it. You're just going forward thinking they're going to be fine because you're the team captain. You're the cheerleader. You are you know, Sally or Joe positive. So I was just assuming that he would be fine. That was our life. And then January 21st, he went into the hospital. He was home about three weeks in between. He went to the hospital and that was ultimately the last day he was ever in our house, which we didn't know. It was really weird. He left. My mom and dad took him to the hospital. I just went to work like it was a normal day. And then four days later, I had surgery to scrape off all the endometriosis adhesion sites all over my body. And then on his transplant day, we're both laying there in our own pain, him from several days of chemo and radiation, me from my surgery. I mean, what are the chances a husband and a wife are going to be sitting there on their pain meds together, like moaning, but that was our life. (laughs) That's what it was. It was just, it was crappy, but that's what it was. And pretty much the day after the transplant, his body just fell apart. His kidneys, his bladder, his lungs, all those things, because he was like number 62, 63 in the world to have the space age radiation that took 40 hours to map it by these neurophysicists and different things to try to, because again, he wanted to try to help other people. So he agreed to do this new study And it worked. It took 60 days, but it worked. His stem cell transplant, which was umbilical cords, worked, totally knocked out the cancer. However, the collateral side effects of all of that just ruined his body. Mm. So I got a call in mid-March and was told that he couldn't breathe. They put him on a vent. So I got there as soon as I could. I remember asking his physician's assistant, can he die? And she said, yes. And I remember looking at her and just hating her with every ounce of my being and totally not her fault. Mm -hmm. But within two weeks, miraculously, he gets off the vent. He gets out of the hospital. He goes to rehab. He's learning to walk because your bones atrophy and all of these things. And then he started to not do well again. So he went back to the hospital. He was there a couple of weeks. And then on April 17th, I got a phone call from a nurse that said that he couldn't breathe. He'd been on low flow oxygen this whole time. 
he said he couldn't breathe. So they were going to have to put him on a vent again. And he got on the phone and told me, I love you. We said, I love you back and forth three times. And I had no idea that was the last time we would ever speak. So they told me, I rushed, I got to the hospital. He's panicking. They have to tie his arms down. So he's not trying to rip out the tubing or anything. And I said, please just put him under, you know, give him the, he's on like fentanyl at that point. He's in so much pain. And then once he's all comfortable as can be, I sit down in a chair near his bed. Doctors come over to me and they say, I'm sorry, which is basically like SOL, you know, this is it. So that was Wednesday, April 17th. And I truly didn't believe he was going to die until they told me that. And then they said, okay, we'll wait till Friday. We'll wait 48 hours. We'll see as much as we can do. You know, if there's a miracle and I'm thinking, well, shit, 48 hours, Friday's my 31st birthday. That's a wonderful present. So We wait till Friday. Then they said 48 more hours. And there's just a lot of medical stuff I could go into. But basically, I was watching him waste away from who he was. As awful as it was, I had a lot of peace within it. And knowing that that wasn't really him, that was just kind of a remnant of who he was at that point, that I was actually able to be with him. Mm -hmm. I later learned in like widow groups on Facebook and different things, you know, they're people that their husbands get, you know, blown up in war or come home from war and take their lives or they go to work one day and they don't come home. I was able to be with him. And I knew that. And I knew that it wasn't going to make sense in the grand scheme of things, but his body gave out. We only get one body. It could only do so much. He fought, even as doctors said, he fought much harder than most people would have. So I had Mm -hmm. a lot of pride in him in the process. My faith helped me tremendously with that. So on Saturday night, the 20th, I made a heaven playlist knowing that he was going to die. When I got to the hospital, it was awful. My dad spent the night next to him for two nights, knowing that he would want someone there. And we exchanged, my dad came down, my mom and I got there and he took the car and said, he looks good. And then we said, okay. And we went upstairs. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is call my dad back and say, you know, we need you to come back. He's because he I feel like he held out the most hope out of any of us. So I had to the doctor came, sat down next to me, put his hand on my knee and no one was no one else was in the room. My mom had gone to get tea or something. And he said, Rachel, buddy, today is the day. Mm -hmm. So then my husband's mom came later and was like, no, no, we can't. We can't. Let's wait till tomorrow. And I'm like, no, this is it. So I signed all the papers to stop, you know, feeding water. He had donated his body to the University of Minnesota. So I'm signing all the forms for things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like eerily calm this whole time. Mm -hmm. And I think that I was so calm just because I was so relieved that he wasn't going to be in pain anymore because he was like in just diabolical pain for months. We went to that cancer conference in April of 2012. In May, he started to get these shooting pains in his legs. One of the things about treatments now is they're like acutely, they're amazing at helping knock the cancer in remission, but the side effects of that are really tough. A little over a year after he was first diagnosed, his hip began to fall out of the socket. He was dragging his leg behind him, things like that. So he had been in tremendous pain for many different variables. Mm -hmm. So I just felt such relief and the oddest thing. And I felt like I should feel bad, but I didn't. The oddest thing is when I had these days leading up, knowing that he was going to die, I just wanted it to be over. I just remember feeling like, I want you to get up. 
out of that bed and walk out of the room with me or just want it to end right now. And I think mm-hmm. that's the toughest thing is when you watch someone that you love die, you just want to either expedite it or have it obviously magically mm-hmm. go away. So I had our minister come and do the last rites and we had to wait a couple hours because it's a Sunday and he was preaching and had everyone come. I had everyone listen to his heartbeat and those things like that. And then I had him taken off the vent off life support and had his physician's assistant cover him and I up with a blanket. And she said, where's your phone? Let me take a picture. And I was like, what? And she's like, you're going to want, she said, you're going to want this later, which sounds really awful. But I did because I had to look at that picture later to remind me of how ill he really was that he wasn't there. And it's just, I've only looked at those a couple times, but like, I did have to look at those. So I, played the music. I played Joy Division and New Order and Ryan Adams and Yaz and, you know, different things and waited for his heart to stop. And it was awful because it was just this guttural animal noise because he needed oxygen. And I didn't cry once because I was just so calm at knowing this is what it is. There's nothing I can do. This is you, but this isn't you. And I felt like I should be crying, but I think that was just me, I guess, knowing I'd have ships of tears come later. (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, it took about an hour. And then just watching what happens after death with the everything was super fascinating. And I was like, this is not you. I'm out of here. So I covered him up and then grabbed all my stuff and then came back, uncovered him turned on his favorite song ceremony by joy division did a little dance for 15 seconds and said you wanted to beat cancer and you did because he did he ultimately beat cancer it was just the side effects that killed him mm-hmm. and then i walked out of the door and i'm rachel 2.0 mm-hmm. wow that is quite a story there is a lot that i would like to dive into there but where we can start because I had similar feelings when my dad was in hospice of like, that's not him. And like, that's his body and he's done now. And he wouldn't want to live this way. It was really confusing to have that feeling. But if you can talk a little bit more on anything there and just, I mean, I assume when he got diagnosed, you guys had conversations around advanced care directives, but how did you prepare to like do that? When he was first in the hospital, they make you fill out those forms, like the healthcare directive and things like that. But we actually never really talked about it. He told me when he was really, really sick after his transplant and he's just like so pale, a shell of who he is. So he was like six, two, you know, with a transplant, you've everything. You, he's got no yeah. eyebrows, tons of freckles that are new because I don't know if you know, but when you get a stem cell transplant, you take on the genetic makeup of who you took. So like you could have jet black hair that's straight and then your transplant, you have curly blonde hair. It's pretty crazy. So he started getting that. kind of red hair, freckles. So he's just looking at me and he's so weak and he's got oxygen under his nose. And I'm like, and he's wearing, we all had team grace and hats and fleeces and stuff and he's wearing his team Grayson hat and he's looking at me and he's just looks like a puppy and he's like I'm not doing this for me I'm doing this for us a couple days leading up to his death 
he would wake up like almost like in a panic Mm -hmm. and I would come over to him and you wonder like, just like your dad was, you wonder like how much are they getting? How much are they knowing those types of things like that? But I was just like, calm down. You're okay. Calm down. And I asked him if he wanted to keep fighting and he, cause the physician's assistant came in and asked him the day before. And he said, no. And I started crying and I was like, does that mean you want to see Jesus now? And he, he shook his head and said, no. And I said, do you trust me? And he shook his head and said, yes. And opened his eyes very quickly. And that was like the last time he opened his eyes. And then I was just like, okay, we're going to keep fighting. This is what we're going to do. So that was the gist of it. But within him writing in his healthcare directive, everything that he wanted. And he was Mm. so funny. Like he literally legitly wrote in his healthcare directive when it says when life would no longer be worth living. He's like, when all of my family and friends are gone, AKA the world is taken over by zombies, AKA (laughs) the living dead. I'm like, who does that? So to have those funny things to read after he's gone. But what was weird is I felt like, I felt like I should be like someone should be chastising me for not crying or for not being more like, <gasps> like when you're going through it, you really like, it flashes in your mind, like all like the scenes of stuff like that you've seen in movies and things like that. Like when he first got sick, my reference of cancer with Julia Roberts and dying young, when this guy like pukes all the time and she's taking care of him. Chemo wasn't really like that. They give you pre-meds that, you know, so it's like yeah. my, my, version of what I knew of grief and all this stuff is totally different. It was really interesting though, because even though no one's there and no one's watching and no one's videoing you, you still have this like insecurity almost of not confidence level of what should I be doing? But is this because you have no point of reference? Is this normal? Should I feel sad? They talk about this all the time because I think that is the thing. And what happens with a lot of caregivers is you kind of go on autopilot because you're just like, what the fuck is happening? Like, and you're like, okay, all of this stuff needs to get done. And you obviously as his wife, were doing all of these things. My parents were divorced and my dad didn't remarry. And so I was doing a lot of that stuff in hospice. He had a really dear friend who I'm so grateful, kind of like project managed his treatment and went to all his appointments with him while I was working and all his kids were working, all of that. But when he got into hospice and I moved out there for a little while and it was just like, okay, this is who's coming. Like, this is what day, like the occupational therapist coming. This is what day this is happening. And your brain is just like, okay, I'm going to, or my brain anyway, was just like, I'm going to schedule all of this stuff. And I like, didn't know what to do. And I certainly cried, but now I think I, my brain's done all of this like protective stuff of like, I don't remember those last couple weeks because it was so terrible. Like, mm-hmm. and what I talk about now on the podcast often is like, there is no example for how we're supposed to do this. What are we supposed to feel? What are we supposed to do? What are you supposed to do after? Like, because people don't talk about it. And I think that is crazy. Like <laughs> It is, it is. And like, for me, it's, I'm, I'm able to tell it in like technicolor in different ways because I wrote it so many times and edited it in my book. I had so much anxiety leading up to even writing it because, and then once I wrote it, like, so in general for my book, I'd write like six or eight hours and cry for like 20 minutes. But as far as like exactly what you're saying, 
after he died, it was like I was a hamster and the wheel had been taken away, but I was still going and going and going and going. And your identity in that way is taken away. Mm-hmm. All the people that have become your friends within the healthcare system that are amazing, they're all gone. Yeah. There's no connection there. So it's just, it's, it's a very weird, bizarre place to be. And then realizing like, when you wake up, like, wait, I don't have to go to the hospital or I don't have to go here. And I like, just chill. It's hard to just chill when you've been in charge of so much. Yeah. And your brain has to like, learn how to deal with this new normal. And it is just crazy. I want to go back to something that you brought up because it's important. Now people are starting to talk about it a little bit more, but the fertility piece of, I don't know how much you're comfortable sharing with your, oh, no, you can ask if, me you're not, if you're not comfortable talking about this, like we can skip it. But the fertility piece is very like fertility itself is like, if it doesn't work out the way you want it to, it's scary and emotional, but was that experience like because it was both of you at the same time and then it was so I mean there was a there was a chance when he first got sick that I could have been pregnant it's not like we had like saw each other enough because he had he worked it's not like we saw each other enough to have enough sex to have a baby like we still but when he got sick it was still like there was a 50 50 and part of me was bummed and part of me was just like oh thank god So three or four months after he died, I decided like I could barely walk. I had so much pain. I'm just going to get a hysterectomy. And the doctor was like, my gyno surgeon was like, are you sure? Once I take it out, I can't put it back in. And Grayson had gone to my pre-surgery appointment before he was hospitalized the the last time. And so he met him, he knew him. And I was like, he died. He's gone. I'm in pain. Just do it. And he was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Okay. So then my husband dies. And then I get rid of our cryogenically frozen children. And then I have all my parts. I kept one ovary so I wouldn't have be like menopausal at 31 and blah, blah, blah. So then there was like a whole nother grief level there as well, because I was giving up on the dream of that. And yeah, you can adopt and do these different things. But I don't think when people are like, oh, are you going to adopt? I looked into it later as a widow. I don't think people realize it's like, minimum like forty thousand dollars it's not an attainable thing for everybody it's a lot it's really no idea that is bananas it is it's a lot it's very expensive if you go internationally it can be like twice as much as that it's crazy yeah wow surrogacy is like like a hundred grand at least yeah it's a lot so it was just like for me it was if he's not going to be here why do i want half of him. I also would have been tied to a very negative, toxic mother-in-law. So that was a blessing not to have that. That attempt. You can read it all in the book. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my own little Jerry Springer part in there. It really isn't in, in my widow years. I really had, to, and I'll talk about positive ways to like frame when you're going through grief, but I had to cut people out that did nothing wrong, but cut people out on social media that had like pretty babies and, you know, someone I went to high school with, she was so sweet, but she was like on her third or fourth kid. And, you know, all these happy, I'm like, I don't want to see your happy. I can't take your happy, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's really hard. There are babies everywhere. And I still struggle to today, sometimes feeling super sick to my stomach or sad or whatever, when, 
you know, I'm watching like, whether it's Grey's Anatomy or whatever it is, and somebody's getting an ultrasound and they're so excited. And I'm like, meh, meh, meh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's tough, but it is, it's a serious form of grief. Yeah. And I've been like, I'm single. I would like to have children of biologically, but I'm not there yet. Um, mm-hmm. But have had a lot of people reach out for the podcast and have a lot of guests who have talked about miscarriages, but recently I recorded with someone yesterday about her cancer diagnosis and she had to figure out, okay, like, what do we do about this? And how are we going to do this? I thought my life would go one way and like, it didn't. And that's a really valid form of grief that I think now people are just starting Mm -hmm. to like be more open about because for so long, that was something that had to be so private. And it's so common. It's so common to have miscarriages and different things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that you brought up positive ways to kind of move through your grieving process. Can you share with the audience some things that worked for you as you were working through all of these emotions? Yeah. So I had friends that did a fundraiser for me after he died and I actually used that money to go to Alaska I was blessed enough to have a little bit of money from my life insurance policy that I didn't work for like eight months. And part of that was healing from the surgery and all these different things. But I went to Alaska for almost three weeks by myself. I was always like, I'm never going on a cruise. Tell me what you will. I've seen the Titanic, but I didn't think I'd be a widow at 31 either. So I went like from Anchorage down to Vancouver and back in the inside passage to all these amazing places you can only reach by like boat or plane and was just like out in the middle of nowhere doing my own like eat pray love thing and Mm. half the time I was like half the time I was like this is amazing just kind of like staking it out on my own and so I did that and knowing that that I don't know I somehow knew that that experience was going to carry me through that I could think about it down the road when I'm hustling working three part-time jobs to keep my house doing garage sales selling anything and everything on eBay and Amazon make ends meet and all this stuff. But what I really realized is it's so important to have adequate and appropriate relational support in your life. So like I had a friend that I had been best friends with for 12 years and over the course of a year in her good intent, which I heard from a friend that talked to her later after we weren't friends anymore. Cause she's like, I was just trying to help her, but she had become like really judgy very authoritarian. So it's just, Mm -hmm. I'd had heard different people tell me you need to be happy. You need to, you know, just do this or just do that. And I was going to be the maid of honor in her wedding. And I pulled the plug after 12 years of friendship. And I was just like, I was so mean via like text or something. I think I like broke up with our friendship because I just didn't want to have to rationalize it on the phone. And it was just like, I love you, but you're a toxic person in my life. And that's the really Mm -hmm. tricky thing about being a widow at 31 is that let alone a cancer wife at 28, but widow at 31 is you learn like the hard, I remember doing like hashtag hard knocks when I would post on, you know, Instagram or different things, but you learn just kind of like you have like those work friends that are like your family. Then you leave, you go to another job and you're just like, that's weird. I don't really talk to them anymore. Life is like that when you go through grief or loss or a catastrophic illness, things like that, that your relationships do ebb and flow and move. And you really do have to surround yourself with positive people. 
someone that was close to me in my life also said, you should just set a date and decide to be happy. And I just wanted to punch them in the face. They were like married for like 25 years with three kids. And it's just like, no, it doesn't work that way. But, you know, having new friendships. So one of the things that I did is the year after he got sick in 2012, the year after he died in 2014, I did two walking half marathons for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society with team and training. So I'm raising money. I'm surrounded by people that get it. Maybe not in the same way because it's been a you know, cousin or sibling or parent or whatever, but they get it. So having those relationships, watching, I think there's so much negativity out there. There's so many sad like movies and TV shows and like, don't watch 13 Reasons Why on Netflix. Don't watch these different things. Like I watched... Frasier and Netflix and friends and would, you know, I'd be packaging up stuff. I'm my late husband's techno records that I'm shipping all over the world that I'm selling. So I have money for my mortgage or whatever. I'm like sitting on my living room floor, packaging up all the stuff, just belly laughing to like friends and realizing like, all right, I'm going to be okay. Like, (laughs) like it's these little steps of things, but you really do have to be proactive about picking and choosing what you're exposing yourself to the relationships you have in your life. My brother, who's 14 years older than me, came the first week of Grayson's illness. And he said right away, you know, this is an opportunity. This is a new opportunity for you. And I wanted to be like, what? Shut up. But when I really listened to him, he was like, you can choose to be better or bitter. And I certainly Mm -hmm. was bitter sometimes. I have a bitter Betty chapter in my book, but you know, it's, you might not be there every day, but knowing that you're going in that direction. Mm -hmm. And as far as me, you know, when you have like a week off a vacation and you can't see it, but you're like, it's going to be great. And then you're on the vacation and you're like, I still have six days. I still have five days. I knew that like through God, like I knew that my life, it was going to be okay. I didn't know how it was going to be okay, but Mm -hmm. just in knowing that, and I'm lucky to have come from a really good, like solid marriage where I wasn't left with any woulda, coulda, shoulda, or regrets or things like that. I know there are very different kinds of complicated grief where people don't have that grace or that situation, but because I knew that I had that, I was able to be with him when he died. I was all those variables. I forced myself to kind of use them like a tool in my tool belt to say, okay, you had this, you had that, be grateful for it, be grateful for what you had and try to be as positive as you can. And it wasn't always easy, but that was really helpful for me to focus on what I did have, not what I wasn't going to have. Mm. I think that's really great advice. And I think sometimes when you're grieving or as part of my grieving process anyway, I was like, oh, I'm not going to get this. I'm not going to like when I go to weddings and I see the father daughter dance, I like, oh yeah, I have to leave. And I really like that advice of like, focus on what you did have. If you can talk a little bit about your book writing process and what motivated you to write it, what are some things that you hope people glean from reading it? Yeah, for sure. So my book is, everybody's probably not familiar with it. There's a website that's out of here, out of Minnesota. I think it is international, but it's called Caring Bridge. And when you have, yeah, yeah. When you have someone that goes through an illness, you can post all your medical stuff. People get it to their email. So my book is my Caring Bridge post, my Facebook post, our Team Grayson post. So I just remember thinking like, what if I showed people the support that I got as far as social media? So I first thought of doing 
putting the book together that way and titling it how social media saved my life. And I remember being on like a trip and asking some random dude on the plane next to me, Hey, if I had a book, what would you, would you buy it? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so I'll go with that. So in 2014, I started putting the post in chronological order, but then actually having to read enough of them to put them in order, it made me pretty depressed. So I stopped and then I picked it back up in 2018 and I decided to have my full narrative of the love story, how it went, so it's the narrative of the social media posts later Instagram when that comes to be because all of the all of these things weren't around um, ten years ago. But then I also have a toolbox because I just remember being like, "Shit, this was so hard." If I had had someone that had been like, "Here you go, here's a book. I've been there," because I looked so hard when he was first sick. I spent hours and hours and hours online looking for grants and extra money for the hospital for parking passes and gas and all these different things. So I help you navigate, you know, your finances, treatment, diagnosis, all of that. I help you navigate when people want to help tangible ways to say, do this, Mm -hmm. all these types of things. So then after he's died in the widow part, I have not only of course, support for yourself. I have that in the illness part too, but planning a funeral, planning a funeral on the cheap, all these things people don't really talk about. I have, yeah, tips and recommendations for anniversaries, birthdays, holidays, you know, what to do that might be beneficial to make it easier. You know, if this is what you used to do with them, this is how you need to probably maybe adapt it, you know, don't feel like it's gone, adapt it in a different way. You know, I had a misfits Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving and had a bunch of friends that had nowhere else to go. And we went to a big Italian place and it was amazing. I wasn't really sad at all. So I decided to put it all in order and then try to have it just be the most navigational free flowing way. So like when I'm in real time, when I'm navigating insurance, I help you walk through it. So I just decided to, to put it all together. So someone could pick it up because the hugest thing is, you know, from your dad, when your person is sick, the first thing you think is, oh my gosh, I don't want them to die. I don't want them to die. I don't want them to die. Then it's get them medical treatment. Then you have to figure out the logistics of taking time off of work and, you know, your life. But then you have to figure out like the finances and everything. And nobody really talks about that. Nobody really walks you through that. And that Mm -hmm. was really tricky. So I have like the no fall. I actually, right now I work for an insurance company. So I help walk you through what every little thing means, what it is, all of that. Um, So I just decided to put it all on paper and it was really painful to write some of it. I edited it eight times. I had a professional editor as well, but it was a lot of PTSD. It was a lot of PTSD. It was a labor of love. It's to the point where if I didn't have pictures of him, if I didn't have people in my life that knew him, and if I didn't have his name tattooed on my wrist where it's almost eight years out, I might gaslight myself and not believe that it ever happened because I've worked so hard to get here. And Mm -hmm. I think that that just shows how healthy the process has been. Yeah. I took grief certification classes just for kicks to learn more about the grief process. I wanted to mm-hmm. know about, you know, ambiguous loss and suicide and miscarriage and all these things because I just wanted something else to relate to. Um, so I talk about anything and everything and there's a lot of joy and shenanigans and weird crap that happened. And you're like, oh my gosh. And it's like, it doesn't rain cats and dogs in my life. It rained buffaloes and dinosaurs and 
I just, I really wanted to create something that people would read, feel the likeness to it, feel like somebody just gave a shit. Somebody gets it, mm-hmm. helps you navigate it. Because when you're going through all this, I was going to say earlier, when you're going through all of it, you can't, like, you just, you don't have enough energy. There aren't enough hours in the day to know how to do all the things that I give you tips for. So I just wanted to put it all in there for people to feel like, oh my gosh, somebody understands. So it's not that you have to be going through grief or a serious illness for this book to be applicable. I think it's like, I've been told, you know, it's a love story toolbox, but it's whether it's your neighbor or your friend or your cousin's husband or whoever, and you want to be sensitive and not say the wrong things and not be like, oh, I understand. No, you don't. (laughs) If you want to know what it's like, this gives you, you read it as if you were there and it's happening to you and you get a sense of just how connected our experiences really are. And I mean, I pray to God that all the evil stuff, all the bad stuff in my life happened to me young. I don't know that it did. We'll see. But I feel better prepared now having a guide of how I did this and should the next horrible thing, God forbid, come up, I will be more prepared to know. And I feel like this is a really good resource for that for people. Yeah, I think that is so wonderful. And I love that you're getting into these things that are like that no one ever talks about, like the insurance, the finances, like all of this stuff. So, and I've said this on the podcast before of like, oh, I'm supposed to figure this out. Like my heart is breaking every day and I'm supposed to be like, huh, I have to go to the bank. Oh, I have to like call the lawyer. Like, oh, I have to do all of this and figure out how do I get a nurse to come overnight? And how do I like all of this stuff that is just like complicated? Yeah. And I have like, I have websites and all kinds of stuff because I even have like how to plan a funeral on the cheap. Because yeah. most of us don't have extra money sitting around for a funeral. You don't know what to well, do, most of, you know. Right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I mean, the really ugly stuff no one really talks about. I have tips on all of it because more than likely, I mean, unless you're someone who's very affluent, of course, very affluent people do have awful things happen as well. More than likely, a lot of people like me don't have enough money to live where you lived. If you had two incomes, you're going to have to consolidate the place that you loved and you shared together. You might not be able to afford to live. Is anybody going to tell you that? No, but I am. And I'm going to give you recommendations of what to do. I even talk about like, say that your spouse leaves something to someone in the will that ended up being like a really big asshole instead of fighting with them over it, just give it to them. Like those things that really no one talks about those types of things happen. Mm -hmm. And I remember like his mom, she came to get all the stuff she wanted back from her house. And it was just like, okay, I guess we're done now. And I mean, things blew up and got really awkward later, which I write about. But it's, it's just those things that you don't think about that you don't talk about and everyone comes to the service and they're so supportive and they give you cards and they give you money, but then they go home and they go to the regular lives and you're like, what the F do I do now? Especially if you're young, like I was Gladys and Cheryl don't bring you casseroles. You're sitting there by yourself. When your husband dies, you don't eat salad. You sit around and eat cake and pizza and get fat and have no motivation. (laughs) Right, you have no right. motivation and you don't get the endorphins and then you just isolate even more. And so it's just, it's, 
it's a really tough process. So I just use all the jewels of wisdom that I learned that worked for me along with things that I knew of other widows and widowers and put it all together to help people. Yeah, no, I think that's so exciting. I'll link to um, where people can buy the book in the show notes. Um, And I think this is so great that you did this. And I'm so glad we got connected and you could share your story. Yeah, and I want to say one more thing. An analogy I like to use is, you know how people would go like in the Klondike, in the Yukon and Alaska, and they, you know, you see the pictures and they're all like lined up behind each other. And of course, they're not like adequately dressed for like the winter snowstorms or whatever. They'll put it on the line, having no idea if they'd live, die, make it, bring gold home. What you're going through, like listeners, like what you're going through right now, it's not easy. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense. However, mm-hmm. more than likely, you're going to get a couple gold nuggets out of what you're going through that's either going to help you volunteer, have a career change, help a friend, have a family, help a family member, even if one person feels better because you can say I've been there and I get it then that's your gold nugget from your hard experience because you're really changing someone's life by getting it so you're having something happen right now that you're not able to fully realize but it will actually help you in the future and it's it's pretty cool yeah yeah I think that is uh, a hard truth but good reminder so if people want to buy your book remind everyone what it's called if you want to direct people to find you online if they want to hear more from you yeah, Wife Widow Now What, it's on Amazon. If you get it in paperback, you can fill out like the budget sheet and charts and all kinds of stuff I have in there. If you get it on e-version, you can actually click the hyperlinks that will take you to all the resources. And you can find Wife Widow Now What on Instagram and Facebook. All right, perfect. Thank you so much. I really am glad that you came on today. This yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. You can find us online at thegriefcoach.co and on social at the underscore grief coach. If you want to go write a nice review on Apple Podcasts, nice reviews only, that helps other people looking for this type of content find it. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks. <laughs>